0: Go, go. Not going to dip in Holy Ghost oil. Facial hair is around. not You're, stop.
1: Stop. You're just going to stay angry at God's Whether it's popular or not, we're seeking at what pleases the Lord. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the UPCU Later podcast. We are back this week with a brand new guest who has decided to come forward and share his amazing story. I'm really, really excited for you guys to get to know him um, and to know more about his background. I will be honest, this episode is a little bit on the heavier side. Um, Dealing with anxiety myself and dealing with it um, within the organization, it was really hard to hear how it affected another person, especially... um, from such a young age. So I'm super proud of our guest for speaking out, for sharing his story. Um, But I do want to just make a quick note and a reminder that while you may find this story healing, you may find it helpful, and I'm sure you'll find it relatable. If you are experiencing, you know, anxiety, depression, things like that, that require a professional We always want to encourage you to reach out to somebody in your local area to get true healing. So with that, we're going to get to the episode and let's go. Okay. Welcome back. We have a brand new guest. Um, Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody?
0: Yeah. Hi, Uh, my name's Keaton. I, yeah, I'm so excited to get into my story. Thank you for making space for this.
1: Of course, absolutely. Um, So did you grow up in a specific denomination within the Pentecostal world?
0: You know, I did. And um, before we get into this, I would love it if we could just take a moment to just do a bit of mindful breathing. (laughs) Okay. Um, It's up to you if we leave this in the recording or not, but get for me, come into the, the moment and get centered.
1: Yeah, I
0: love it. Go for it. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and do what's called box breathing. If you're familiar, just on the count of four, breathe in, hold, exhale, hold, but feel free to do whatever is right for you. Okay. thank you so much
1: of course yeah absolutely
0: yeah so my journey with oneness pentecostalism I guess really starts at the beginning Um, so my parents were born and and raised in the same UPC affiliated church Uh, they knew each other their whole childhoods Uh, they got married pretty young as you know is very common in that culture and I was born so Yeah, I I was born a third-generation Pentecostal, which is, in that context, a bit of a a badge of honor. Um, But my parents did did divorce. Uh, They divorced when I was a baby. And when they did, uh, my dad stopped attending. And my mom found a lot of comfort and community in the church. Uh, She dug dug a bit deeper. And that's awesome. Um, You know, at, at this phase of my life, I... I think that that's one of the best attributes of the local church, um, you know, the ability to sort of be a hospital or a sanctuary to people who, who need it. So yeah, I mean, long, long story short, I grew up deeply
1: rooted in the UPC. Yeah. And like you said, the third generation, it is, people do wear that as a badge of honor within the organization.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: Um, so you're you're born and raised in it. Tell me, did you spend a lot of time there? Were you super involved um, within ministries and things like that in the youth group growing up?
0: Yeah, yeah so um my entire extended family really was living the the oneness apostolic Pentecostal lifestyle, and uh, many of them still are so you know, I had grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles and cousins and siblings um, that were all attending church and I always think back to like some of my earliest memories were playing under the pews during a sermon and stealing butterscotch candies from uh, my aunt's purse or my grandma's purse. Um, Mm -hmm. It was the only lifestyle I knew for the majority of my life. Uh, And yeah, to answer your question, back then we had two services on Sundays. Uh, We had a midweek service that I think was on Wednesdays. That was kind of like a Bible study. Uh, We had a Thursday night choir rehearsal we had weekend youth events like district rallies or you know, local youth events, revivals. Um, I spent most of my summers at camp or convention or Congress or general conference. So like other guests have said, um, if the doors were open, uh, we were there, I was there.
1: Yeah, and I know that you and I had talked before that you're pretty musically inclined. Um, what age did you start doing all of that within the church?
0: Yeah, good question. I didn't start playing uh, music in the church until I got my first guitar uh, when I was twelve years old, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How I mean, was
1: that?
0: yeah, I, I loved it. It truly playing music and playing music live, specifically at such a young age, that was that that really was a gift, right? I I have always been such an introverted person, and uh, in the context of a Pentecostal worship service. Uh, that's not exactly taught as a good thing, right? We're, we're taught no. to be loud and boisterous and make a joyful noise and move around. And none of that ever felt comfortable or authentic to, to me or who I am. So uh, when I got my first guitar and I started playing on the stage, like almost immediately, uh, it gave me a way to sort of get out of my head and uh, live in my body for a, a short bit of time. Um, and yeah, learning an instrument by playing it in front of people in a kind of safe environment where mistakes are okay, like a local church, I still think that that is one of the best ways to learn an instrument. So um, yeah, it all came pretty fast and uh, ended up evolving into something much more that I'm excited to talk about.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um... And I do feel like, like you said, it's a safe space because nobody's looking at you like, okay, play it perfectly. They're just excited that you're there being used and giving of your talent to the church. Right,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think that's a good representation of just the overall truth that uh, for most of my early years, especially the church was a very positive place for me. like I mentioned, it's where I would spend time with family because my whole family was so, so in it, right. Church and family conversations really blended. And, um, yeah. so I knew what was happening at their church, my church. I had aunts and uncles who weren't really aunts and uncles. They were just church friends. Uh, it's a place yeah. where I, I could play music. It's a place where I could meet new friends. Um, I had so many close relationships, so many sleepovers at the homes of church friends. Um, but it's also where where other people, adults, could really speak into my life for the first time. So uh, my Sunday school teachers were also close family friends, and I felt close to them, and I felt a sense of trust. Uh, as I got older, I I made close friends with several leaders. You know, one of them um, ended up being my first mentor. I'm still very grateful for that. And yeah. Lastly, you know, church for me as this like anxious little. You know introverted kid uh, who liked to think about these big ideas church was a place where i could sort of make this abstract scary big world into something that felt manageable and intangible um, yeah it, it meant a lot to me
1: right um and i feel like it's also like you knew what to expect you know, you were close with these people, you know, there was sort of a um, order of service when it came time for the, you know, actual service to take place with, you know, a lot of people find comfort in knowing song service might go for a little bit, but you know, what's coming next. You know what to expect.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. And how was your dad with, um, if that's okay to ask, you know, you said that he, you know, left the church shortly after your parents divorced. Was he, um, like supportive of you staying and being as involved as you were?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, he, although he, you know, stopped tending and, um, wasn't, wasn't really a part of that lifestyle anymore. Uh, my dad was always, uh, very respectful of the, the Pentecostal world and, and that, that lifestyle. And, you know, he, he would ask questions, um, I think largely to to make sure that I was asking, that, that I knew why I believed what I believed, but he would never, never try to dismantle it or he would never disparage it. Okay. And re- well, remember, his parents are still part of it too, so um, he's also very connected to that world.
1: Right. Yeah. So you had, you know, all these really close connections that you said it was, you know, a safe space for a really long time. Um, do you remember the first time that you felt like maybe? something felt off or that it wasn't, you know, what you thought it had been for all this time?
0: Yeah, um, that is a great question. So yeah, I mean, looking back, there were definitely some very difficult times. And, you know, I I think it's just as important to be honest about those. And so there are two stories that come to mind um, that I'd love to share. The first is the story of Y2K uh, in the Pentecostal Church. So, December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, um, big, big event called Y two K. And uh, looking back, it's, <laughs> it's it's funny, but I'm sure there are going to be people who don't remember what it is or you know, weren't alive um, when it happened. So, um, basically, it was this. It was this fear that all of the computers that, for the first time, have started to really run most of our society uh, wouldn't be able to handle this. Switch in the database from a 1900 year to a 2000s year. So we're going from 99 to 2000. And looking back, that sounds you know, goofy, right? Um,
1: but it was a just, really big thing at the time.
0: It was huge, it was massive. And you know, it, it, this wasn't just a church thing, right? The news oh, completely no, overhyped it. Yeah, I mean, yes. this, was, this was on the 24 hour news cycle. It, it, this was a global panic. Uh, But in the church world specifically, Y2K became a magnet for apocalyptic prediction. Yes, Um, And again, this this isn't just the UPC, right? Evangelical churches all have stories of um, Y2K hype uh, and very sad things that happened at this point in history. But in my own church, in my local small church, um, we had a revival and an evangelist obviously was Uh, preaching at that revival. And he made a very bold claim. Um, I guess back then we would have used the term prophecy that uh, Y2K could be the rapture, right? I don't know how definitive he said it, but when the revival was over, my pastor kept that narrative going during weekly Mm. services, right? So he would say things like, get ready, friend, he's coming back soon. Um, and all of this was really mounting toward our our yearly watch nights or service. Um, I guess it's probably worth it's, explaining what that
1: is. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, because there's, there's going to be somebody who's like, "I'm sorry, a what?" You yeah, know, I feel yeah. Like to, to explain that real quick.
0: Sure. Yeah. So watch night services were very common in the Pentecostal world. I don't know if they still do them, but these were yearly services, all night prayer gatherings um, on New Year's Eve. So typically, you would gather in the evening um, and you would have various moments of prayer throughout the night so you you pray for the church you pray for revival you pray for your family you pray for people who left the church to come back to the church there were typically like foot washing services at these uh at these things and we did them every year um this was like a tradition so i i'd been to many of them yeah so this particular night So it was pretty different, Uh, obviously, with Y2K and the revival and just the fear that everyone had. Um,
1: (laughs) Around what age were you at this time?
0: I was eight years old. Yeah.
1: So that must have been pretty unnerving for an eight-year-old, too, because I I think I was 10, nine Mm -hmm. or 10, and I remember being terrified.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Terrified is a good word for it. Um, I... Like I said, I've I'd, I'd been to to many Watch Night services my whole life, um, which was short at the time. Right, I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> but that particular year, I cried the entire night, and while all of the adults around me saw that as a good thing, they they saw that I had a heart for God. Uh, in reality, I was I was terrified. I was terrified that um, that I'd never grow up. I was, I was scared that I would never get married, that I'd never have a kid. I mean, I'd never have a job. I I was eight. I hadn't done anything yet. And that fear sparked this shame reflex in me because if, if if this is the the big wedding in the sky that, that we're all supposed to be excited for, and I'm, I'm not excited for it. What could that mean? You know, that, that must mean that something was wrong with me. And at eight years old, I hadn't yet spoken in tongues, but I I was old enough to know that I needed to. So with everything that I was taught, there was a very high likelihood that in just the next few hours at eight years old, I was going to be sent to hell to be tormented for all of eternity. And I, I wept the entire night and I really was oscillating between two prayers on one side, just begging God to just, just wait a little longer, which felt so selfish, right? How how dare, how dare me want to grow up. (laughs) But then on the other side and where I spent most of my time, just asking God if, you know, if you're going to do this, um, if this really is your will, please just let me speak in tongues tonight. I want to go to heaven, right? And so midnight comes, nothing happens. Uh, All of the rapture talks kind of trickles down and dies down over the next month or two. And then the next year, uh, 2001, after the attacks on uh, September 11th, the same playbook started to play itself out. Uh, The rapture talk, skyrockets uh, there's all kinds of discussion of persecution of christians and the end times and like this this must be the beginning of that and the tr- the truth is that that fear is a powerful powerful motivator and when i look back at these times ytk and 9 11 uh, these were the times when our small local church really was the fullest And. Um, and I still hadn't spoken in tongues, and I was, I was terrified. So I started having panic attacks and night terrors that year in 2001. Um, I had my first panic attack when I was nine years old. Um, it was the middle of the night. And I remember waking up with just this deep fear of, of the end of the world, of not making it to heaven, um, what that would be like, uh, that evolved into, at the time, what I called night terrors, um, where I would wake up and my body would be completely frozen. And I, I could I could see, like actually in a waking state, see demons at the foot of my bed trying to drag me to hell. Or um, as I got older, a little bit older, I, I, I could hear them, um, Talking about you know me and my life or the, my my ministry that they were that they were going to tear down. Uh, you know we didn't have the the language for this uh, when we were kids. I know now that this is called sleep paralysis, and it's actually um, a very common psychological phenomenon among people who are experiencing acute stress. But when I was nine, and I I told the adults around me what I was going through they called this spiritual warfare. Um, right. What I needed to do was to pray harder and and to push through it. And all of this still is being seen as a good thing, right? He's, he's, he's so young and he has such a heart for God. Um, but what I was experiencing was deep psychological trauma that I wouldn't be able to unpack for another 20 years. Um, I actually and,
1: like, like, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, and listening to that, like, it, my heart is just shattered because I actually had another person reach out to say that you know they had what was you know what's referred to now as a uh, rapture anxiety, mm. but sure. that they couldn't trust their parent, yeah. and that it caused all these issues because it felt like they couldn't trust the adults around them to to take care of them and to protect them. Um, and so yeah. just listening to it, like, as a mom, I'm like, oh, God, like, to, you know, know that, you know, that's how you experience these things is so heartbreaking. Um, and that the people around you couldn't see it for what it was. It was encouraged. Mm-hmm. It was, from what it seems. Um, but but you were suffering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. And, you know, I, I don't know that that I knew that at the time. Um at the time, right, I, I would have adopted the narrative around me, and I very much did. Uh, but yeah, I there was a lot going on, very deeply under the hood, and that mistrust of adults and spe- specifically adults in leadership. Yeah, that's something that in a later episode. I'm I'm very excited to talk about my my mental health journey and, and unpacking all yeah. of that. Um, yeah, I do want to make make a note here on the rapture. Um, my goal is, is in no way to convince anyone to, to change their beliefs. Um, and nor do I think I would be able to convince any Pentecostal that the rapture isn't real. Um, I do think that people should research the history of the rapture um, and the doctrine that started it about 200 years ago. Um, what, what I do want people to take away from this story, and I hope that they do, is the the unnecessary pain and psychological damage that's done from just being too flippant and connecting current events to the rapture. So like you know we talked about Y2K and 911 and those are just two examples from my childhood. But anyone who's been involved in the Pentecostal world for any significant amount of time is going to be aware of more. So
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, in, in my own life I I remember I mean, some of the more wild examples are like, I remember both Apple Touch ID and the Disney World Magic Bands were somehow the mark of the beast, right? Um, I've been out of the church for a while now, but I, I stay connected and I've yeah. seen COVID, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and now this the crisis in Israel and Gaza just being used to justify this all over again. Um, right. In my parents' generation, like there was that that pamphlet by Edgar Weinstadt, 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That was widely distributed in the UPCI, right? Just the same story, different year. And in fact, when, yeah. when Edgar Weinstadt, um, his prediction didn't come true, he published a, a whole new revelation. I think he called it the final shout. And uh, mm-hmm. in that, he claimed that the Bible is full of examples of prophecies being one year off. And so 1989 was definitely the year that the rapture would come. So here's my ask um, to any Pentecostal listening. um, The current success rate, no matter what you believe, of predicting the end of the world is zero. uh, Just please, before publicly making any predictions, whether you're a leader or not, just think twice about the wake of unnecessary pain that you will leave behind you because it's important.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially, you know, there's children who are, are really taking this to heart and really, you know, ending up with damage that didn't need to happen um, yeah. because, the, because the church is preaching fear tactics. Um, yeah. I want to backtrack for just a minute. You mentioned the Mark of the Beast. Um, and I know that somebody listening is going to be like, the what of the what? Um, <laughs> can you just briefly talk about um, the UPC's teachings on what they believe the mark of the beast um, is yeah. and how, what it'll be?
0: Yeah, so the mark of the beast is a reference to um, Revelation chapter 13, I believe. Um, and, you know, there are, are many different interpretations. Um, within the UPCI, there are so many different like conflicts on how it'll happen, when it'll happen. It's it, it's not exactly tied down, and um, it all it all goes back to the Book of Revelation, right? This idea that um, leading up to the rapture or the end of the world, the tribulation, that um, there will be deceptive leaders that sort of take over uh, society, um, and the mark of the beast is something that. Uh, a lot of people will adopt. Uh, I believe Revelation 13 mentions the forehead and the right hand. Um, and yeah, Disney Magic Bands, Touch ID. Um, I mean, every anything you did with your right hand that was new technology was claimed to be the mark of the beast.
1: So, so yeah, technology progressing um, in a forward positive direction. Um, but yeah, any, anything that changes, anything that's, you know a news headline seems to be they're able to tie it back to something that they're trying to make truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Confirmation bias is, um, is the default in human nature. We all do it.
1: So you're, you're dealing with these things around eight, 10 or 11 years old. Um, but you know, then you start playing guitar, you start, you know, becoming more involved, um, and did you just sort of sweep these things away, just sort of deal with them, accept them as what the church said they were, spiritual warfare, you know, you've got a, a heart for the Lord, things like that. Um, hmm. How did you progress moving forward, you know, until like a high school yeah. age um, to deal with these sorts of things?
0: Yeah, yeah, so um, I think a big pivotal moment for me was uh, when I spoke in tongues for the first time. Um, so I was, at, I was 11 when this happened. Uh, it was right before I started playing music. Uh, and I was very in my head about speaking in tongues, right? I would learn later in life that this was undiagnosed anxiety. Uh, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, I had yeah. a ton of close calls, like you know, stammering lips, which is a reference to Isaiah 28, which is sort of like a vibrating lip sensation that's caused by uh, nervous energy, exiting the body. Um, I, was, I was thinking about speaking in tongues every day. I was waking up in fear still for now at this point, several years. Um, because the
1: church is teaching but like the church is teaching that this is necessity for heaven and without it, you are going to hell so that's where the fear is coming from is because they're telling you and not you specifically but they're preaching you have to have this to go to heaven
0: yeah which is so funny when you think about the upci right because um when the upc was formed it was formed from a merger of two separate organizations um there was the pajc and then uh I believe it was was coined UPC time. Different organizations had different definitions of salvation. So uh, the the UPC at the time, before it was UPCI, believed that salvation happened upon uh, repentance. And it was a vote between the two organizations that determined the current definition of salvation, which does require tongues and full submersion baptism.
1: I'm a little shocked right now. I actually didn't know that um, that they voted.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> to say what salvation would be. Yeah. So, but you spoke in tongues for the first time at age 11.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that that story I think is important. Um, so the that that night it was it was a midweek service. The entire organization, or sorry, the entire church, our uh, small local church, was surrounded around myself and one other kid who hadn't yet spoken in tongues, and right as. As any sort of crowd energy, um, the service ebbs and it flows, and the energy rises and falls. And I felt this sort of surge when the other the other kids started speaking in tongues, and here I was, the third generation Pentecostal, been seeking it for years, still hadn't spoken in tongues. When that happened, all of the energy shifted over to me, and um, I still like vividly remember the feeling of just a, adult hands all over my. 11 year old body my hands on my head hands on my back on my chest literally holding my arms up because i've been praying for 45 minutes at that point um these are all people i cared about and really if i'm being honest in the moment all i wanted to do was to make them happy and i wanted to make god happy and really i just wanted to not be scared anymore and so the service ends and a leader a leader asks me uh, if I had spoken in tongues and they imply that, you know, they had heard me speaking in tongues, even though I knew I was just exhausted and that was probably me mumbling. Um, I said yes. And I I agreed. And everyone was so excited. Um, I got to call my grandparents and tell them the good news. We, we scheduled the baptism for uh, that following Sunday. And it was such a celebration, but but I always knew, and um, so that's when uh, I started playing guitar and getting more involved, and I quickly began receiving opportunities to play in larger events. So, you know, church revivals became other churches' revivals, and that became district rallies, and then that turned into playing at our state's camps and at other state's camps, and. Um by the time I was eighteen, I was playing at uh, national events, so um, like I played at general conference. Um, well, so i was I was good at this. It was something I loved to do, and I yeah. felt like this is what God was calling me to do. Um, and that was confirmed by leaders around me and prophecies.
1: So after that night, uh, that midweek service night, do you did you feel like the fear went away? Um, and the, the anxiety that you had been feeling, um, was it diminished for a little bit or was it still there just in a different way?
0: Mm. Um, you know, I mentioned confirmation bias a few minutes ago. Um, I, I, wanted, I wanted it. I'd wanted it for years. So um, of course I'm going to do whatever makes me feel better about the situation. So um, I would say that the fear dipped down because I was able to convince myself that um, that I was now qualified to make it to heaven, uh, even though I sort of always looked back with with a bit of doubt because I knew that that first time really was a lie. Like as I got older, really like like any sort of muscle memory, it became much easier for me to kind of slip in and out of speaking in tongues. And by the time I was in high school, it was kind of second nature. Um, but at the same time, I was also starting to notice that everyone in my church and everyone in other churches sort of had their own repeatable phrases when they would speak in tongues. And when I noticed that, I started to realize that I had my own sort of repeatable phrases and that kind of caused a whole new level of doubt for me.
1: Wow. But you're still continuing to, to do the, you know, you progress pretty quickly, you know, from learning at 12 to national conferences at 18 is very impressive. Um, Did you find that playing made you feel better and gave you you know, a piece about the things that were going on around you?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like I mentioned, when I, when I was a kid, um, it gave me a space to get out of my head, be in my body. Um, As an anxious person, it gave me, you know, a way to express myself at the time I would have said, it gave me a way to worship. Um, It, it gave me a sense of purpose. And also I, I felt like I was good at it. So, you know, it gave me a sense of, um, I guess you could say pride. Um, So yeah, music really is what, kept me going, um, at that point because it felt like that's what God wanted for me. Um, and that's ultimately why I decided to go to Bible college and to specific uh, music ministry.
1: And was that a decision that was easy for you to make? Did you consider other colleges or was it like, when did you know in high school that you were going to pursue Bible college?
0: Yeah. Well, I had heard for most of my adolescent years that, I was being called. And I felt that myself, again, because this was something I loved to do. And um, you know, because my family is so, so rooted in, in that lifestyle, um, we all really believed, and I think it's still really taught, that ministry is the highest calling. So you know, why would anyone push me to do something different when I'm already being called to you know, you know, the best you can get in life? Uh, so I would say by the time I was 16, um, I pretty much knew that I was going to go to Bible college.
1: Okay. Um, were you in a public school for high school?
0: I was, I was. Okay. Yeah.
1: And how was that? Was your experience there just ready to get out so you could go to Bible college? Or was it more of like you absorbed what was happening while you were in high school?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate that question. Um. Because looking back, I, I do think that the exposure to other worldviews that I received in particularly the public school system um, saved me in a lot of ways, right? Because what I was experiencing in the Pentecostal world it is such an kind of homogenous insular culture, right? Everyone sort of believes the same thing. And in public school, there's such a wide range of beliefs Um, And that taught me to understand that what we were living was only one aspect of culture. Um, It, you know, obviously at the time I, I saw it more as an opportunity to witness to people who didn't believe. I saw it as an opportunity to, you know, learn different methods to defend my belief systems. But, you know, like how would I how would I witness to a Catholic person? How would I witness to you know someone who's attending a Nazarene church, right? Um, but in retrospect, it was more about seeing a a, a breadth of different cultural experiences. Mm-hmm.